This morning we're starting a brand new series of messages and um, I want to start though with a, a little bit of a history lesson and so I'm going to need you to help out, alright? Um, it, it's cold outside, we've, we've, we, we've been kind of cooped up and uh, we, it's time to kind of participate and help each other out and so I want you to help me out. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen, you tell me who it is, alright? So we're going to head, here it is. Thomas Jefferson, alright, how many of you knew that? How many of you want to admit you didn't know that? Alright? It's Thomas Jefferson right there. Thomas Jefferson's famous for a lot of things, right? Like, for instance, he's, pre- he's president of the United States at one time. He's famous for his home. There's a picture of Monticello right there. Famous for the architecture involved and how it was built and all that was happened. He, he's famous for being a part of one of the most important moments, obviously, in American history, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, that he was one of the major drafters of that, one of the major writers of that. But he's also known, you may not know this, that he has his own version of the Bible. He took a Bible and he made a version of the Bible based on his understanding of the world. And I've actually got a picture of part of the Bible here. Now, you notice anything strange about the Bible there? This is Jefferson's actual Bible. You you notice anything strange there? There, There's stuff cut out. Let me just tell you, that's not advisable, all right? There's stuff cut out, and if you were to page through his copy of the Bible, his copies of especially the Gospels, you would see all kinds of... He would literally take razor blades and cut out portions of the Bible. Does anybody know what portions of the Bible he cut out? The miracles. Every miracle performed by Jesus, he cut out. Now, here's the reason, and I'm... Some of you are going to walk away with a different understanding of Thomas Jefferson today. That's okay. History is true. The reason is he didn't believe that miracles actually happened. He thought Jesus was a great prophet, a great teacher, a great moral man, but he didn't believe that miracles could happen. That's not an opinion that he shares alone. In fact, there's this quote from the New Yorker magazine from a couple of years ago. And this is a writer in the faith section for the New Yorker magazine. And he said, we know that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intercession with the laws of nature. He says that there is no evidence whatsoever that miracles actually happen. And so you have Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of this country, creating a Bible where he cuts out all the miracles because he says it's not important to who Jesus is and they didn't actually happen, so there's no reason to have them in there. You you have this writer in the New Yorker, one of the leading publications in this country, saying that we know, notice how confident he is, we know that in the history there is no evidence. And I learned this particular worldview that miraculous or supernatural things doesn't do not happen, not from Thomas Jefferson or from some writer in the New Yorker. I I was inundated with it even as a child. And some of you have heard me talk about this before, but in this, right? Scooby, Scooby Scooby-Doo, where are you, right? Now, what's the basic plot line of a Scooby-Doo episode? It's a mystery, right? They solve a mystery. But let me ask you this question, all right? What generally do they think is happening at the beginning of the episode? They think it's some supernatural ghost, monster, something unnormal. Is that a word? It is today. All right, abnormal, something different, something out of the norm, something miraculous 
is happening. Now, what happens at the end of the episode? It's always somebody behind the scenes pulling the levers, being a person. It's a reasonable explanation instead of an actual supernatural event. If it wasn't for you, I would have got away with it. But the idea that is at the base of that is miraculous supernatural stuff doesn't happen. There's a reasonable explanation for it all. Here's what I want to tell you kind of as we begin this series. There are a lot of us, even people that proclaim faith in Jesus Christ, that live their lives as practical Jeffersonians or practical Scooby-Dooites. Where we live our lives as if nothing miraculous or abnormal or out of the ordinary or supernatural will really happen. There's a guy named Paul Hebert who's a, a missiologist, a guy that studies missions, and he says that in America in particular, we live in what we call the excluded middle, which is we know God exists, he's up there, he does great things, and he's done great things in the past, but we can explain everything here by normal scientific procedure, and so there's really no intersection between what God is doing in the miraculous and supernatural and what we're living day by day, and there is a middle ground in there that we just don't even think about. Here's the problem with that. If you cut out the miracles of Jesus, the supernatural, the miraculous, the abnormal, you have cut out the heart of the faith. And whether you want to act like it or not, whether you want to fit into a society that doesn't want to believe this or not, we believe that miraculous, supernatural, out of the ordinary, unexplainable things have happened in history, are happening today, and will happen in the future. And here's what we're going to do for the next few weeks, all right? I'm going to ask you to take your rational mind and open it a little bit. Because I want you to be open to the possibility, not only these things that we're going to study about Jesus' miracles as we lead up to Easter, not only are we going to talk about what he did, I want you to open your mind to the possibility of what does he want to do for you, in you, in your life. The verse that I preached on the very first Sunday I ever preached in this sanctuary, the Sunday that I came in view of a call, is Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. And it says that we give glory and honor to Him who is able to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. To Him be the glory in the church through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. And we're going to be looking over the next few weeks in the book of John, and we're going to see seven miracles that Jesus performed on his way to the cross. In fact, we're not even, we're going to end on Easter Sunday. I mean, think Easter is six weeks from today. That's the way it feels outside, right? Nice and spring weather, snow everywhere. And so for the next seven weeks, today and moving forward, we're going to look at a different miracle each week. But this is what I want you to know. They're not just miracles for miracles sake. I don't want you just to look at them and go, wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. That's cool. I can't believe he did that. Isn't that an awesome thing to think about? I want us to ask the question, what does that mean and what does he want to do in our life today? Can can I tell you the reason? We're going to look at all of these from the book of John. Can I tell you the reason they're even in there? John tells us, he tells us at the end of his book in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He records all this stuff. This is right after the resurrection. This is right after he is reinstated. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Basically he says, I mean, there's some crazy stuff I wrote in this book, but there is tons of stuff I didn't. But these are written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, 
you may have life in his name. The whole reason that he does these signs and he does these miracles is because he wants us to believe in Jesus and place our life in him and allow him to work in and through us that will give us life beyond comprehension. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first one of these today, also known as the anti-Baptist one. Some of you walked in and about... Um, Lost it when you looked up on the back wall and winemaker is up there. What in the world is happening today? John chapter 2. Now, let me ask you a quick question, all right? John chapter 2 comes immediately after what? John chapter 1. Great job. Y'all are with it today. And John chapter 1 is one of the most high and lofty parts of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This whole thing happens. John the Baptist comes as the forerunner of Jesus. And when you get to chapter 2, we get the kickoff of Jesus' ministry. He's been in a place. He's called some people to Himself. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is at the end of chapter 1 where they go and they tell this guy, hey, we found the Messiah. We think this is the one. And really this is kind of the, the introduction for the end entire book because he says i don't believe you and he says just come and see just come and see and so for the next few chapters he's going to see this guy see jesus work and it's not going to take that long for the fulfillment to happen because at the end of chapter one if you're looking at the end he says to them i truly say to you you will be heaven open the angels of god ascending and descending he says listen if you follow me you're going to be amazed at what you're going to see and here's what happens Jesus is gathering some of his disciples. He's beginning to get a following. But before he does, he's got one last engagement to do back near his hometown. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, just a quick explanation. Weddings in that day were not 30-minute events. They, They weren't held in a church where people came and, oh, doesn't she look great? And everybody looked at the bride in white and, wow, that's amazing. And you're there for 30 to 45 minutes. If it goes much longer than that, you're like, wow, what? Well, that's a long wedding. And go to the reception. They, they had a week-long wedding. So the first day they would get married, the husband and wife would go to their home, and then they would become the host for the rest of the week. There would be a week-long party. It was a reason to get out of work. It was a reason to get out of anything. The community looked forward to it. This was not one of those things where it's 45 minutes to the wedding, and you're like, do we have to put these clothes on? Do we have to go to this thing? This was looked forward to. It was like a snow day in the middle of a month when you had been to school every day for six weeks straight. Right? But it was like a Sumner County usual snow day where there's no snow on the ground and so you can have fun. Right? Not like where you can't go anywhere. So they were, they were celebrating. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now this is just interesting because she's never called in the book of John by her name Mary. Maybe because there are lots of Marys. They don't want to confuse it. So it's just this is the mother of Jesus. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now there are some that question whether Jesus was the one invited. That this is a close family member. They think maybe Mary had some part in the hosting responsibilities. Perhaps it was a cousin. Perhaps it was somebody that was in the extended family. We don't know. Uh, maybe it was somebody in Joseph's family. What we can tell from this time is we think Joseph has, is no longer in the picture. That he has passed away. And so this is just Jesus who's the oldest there with his mom. And he's brought his disciples with him. Now, that wouldn't have been that strange. But the truth is, they probably weren't ones invited to the wedding. This is, we're now with Jesus. We're tagging along. They are his like plus eight. All right? And so they're there. 
And while they're at the wedding, a problem occurs. When their wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, if you were in a, an audience back in their day and time, this is the moment you would have gone, oh! You want to practice that? Okay, we're going to, all right? So I'm going to read this. And I want you to react like you would have reacted back then, okay? So they ran out of wine, and the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. That's all right. All right. That, this was, we think that at the most, this is the third day into a seven-day party. This is running out of Rotel 15 minutes in, right? I mean, this is, we got nothing, and the... They didn't drink wine normally. It wasn't like everybody had wine cellars and they had stuff everywhere. This was special occasions you drank wine. And for seven days you got to provide. And if they're on day three and they're out, we got problems. And it wasn't just, oh, well, we'll have to go get something else. Let's run down to Publix and find what's down there. This was societal ostracization. You're no longer part of our group. This is a major faux pas. This is showing up in an event and all of the the norms of society have been broken and the husband and wife would be forever stained because at their wedding they ran out of wine. Now here's the question that we all kind of wonder and this is the question that I wonder. What did Mary think Jesus was going to do? Because I don't think she thought he was going to take some water. I mean, we, we know the end of the story, right? I don't want to ruin it if you don't. I don't want to spoiler alert. All right. I don't think she thought, man, he's just going to take a bunch of water and turn it into wine. Here's what I do think. Mary knew that he, he was special, obviously, because of the birth and because God had a plan for him. She knew he was resourceful. My, my guess is, from what we can tell from Scripture, that Joseph was no longer in the picture because of death. And because of that, Jesus was the man of the house. And so she had depended on him. She had used him. You know, he had been the one working, making a living. He was the one supplying, providing for them. He was the head of the household for her because widows in that society were taken care of by their kids. And so she just is expressing to him, I think there's a problem I think you can do something about it. I've seen you do some amazing things. I don't think that Jesus was around the wood shop doing miraculous stuff. But she knew he was the guy to go to. Jesus has one of the strangest reactions. It's strange to us because we don't understand it. It wasn't strange to him. But Jesus says to her, Woman, just we'll talk about that in a minute, all right? What does this have to do with me? Doesn't that sound real exciting from your son? How many of you moms have ever got a response like that from a son? What, what are you, what, mom, what, I don't, I don't want to do that. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, a couple of things, all right. First of all, woman, for us, does not sound like an endearing term. I mean, if, if you say to your child, hey, I need you to do something, and just for instance, if I said something, if, if Susan said something to Eli and said, Eli, I need you to do this, and Eli went, woman, that's, don't do that, all right? Just a little tidbit, all right? That's not good. And so this, this doesn't sound right, but the problem is we don't know how to translate what he said, really. 
That's the literal way he said it. I mean, that's the literal word he said, but the way he said it could have been an endearing term. There's some writing back then that this was an endearing term, like my dearest woman. When he's on the cross and he's giving John, his mother, and responsibilities with each other, do you remember that tender moment when he says, look, this is your son and son, this is... He says woman there too. Same word. One person said, and this was in a... English scholar that I read this that the best translation of this may be the southern expression ma'am like a little bit of reverence but also an endearment at the same time though there is some sort of distance here because this wasn't normally how sons talk to their moms here's what I think is happening here here's what I think is going on here's what I'm pretty sure Jesus is meaning He has explained to her, it's almost like he's saying, this is the last thing that I'm doing for you. If you want to get on a big level, I mean, obviously everything he's doing is for her. I mean, he's going to go to the cross for her, just like he went to the cross for us. But Jesus has now transitioned to where the person, and he's always been there, but it's the conflict has finally arrived. He is no longer going to be the provider in the home for his mom. It's now time to do his father's mission. When he says my hour, the word my hour used in the book of John almost always refers, if not always, to the cross. And here's what I think he knows that she doesn't. Once his ministry starts, there's only one place for it to end. And he's basically saying to her, you have no idea what you're asking me to do. I don't think he's reluctant as much as he's just saying to her, what's about to set in motion is something that ends only on the cross in Jerusalem. It's going to break your heart. It's going to break mine. But once this starts, that's the conclusion. His mother said to the servants, and I love this, Because even in that moment, she has complete faith in him. Do whatever he tells you. So here's what he tells them to do. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, some of your translations won't give that little explanation, but that we'll talk about that in just a minute. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Let's do a quick math, all right? What's what's six times 20? 120. What's six times 30? 180, right? So we got between 120 and 180 gallons. Let me just quick question. Is that a lot or a little? That's a lot, right? Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Let me just ask you a quick question. They didn't have a water hose. So where did they have to go get the water? In a well. Quick question. Is that going to take a little bit of time or a lot of time? That's a lot of time. Listen, no matter how many you got, you only pump so much water out of a well at a time. So somewhere around 150 gallons of water they're pumping out. They get it all out. They fill the jars with water. They fill them up to the very top, to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now let's leave it there for just a second. Let me tell you something I read this week. Now, let me ask you a question. What, what's the general way people see this happening? What they see is they fill up the six big 
purification jars, stone jars. That's important because most jars in their time weren't made out of stone, but if they're made out of stone, they were considered clean and never could they be unclean. And so as a result, they could use for purification. So as you're washing your hands, as you're, as you're washing things that need to be washed in the midst of all of the ceremonial things that had to happen in Jewish life, they were considered clean. And he fills them all up. Now, here's the thing. When it says now draw some, most people think of, oh, they went in and they dipped a cup into those water vats, those six stone water jars and took it and it was suddenly wine. But here's what it seems to imply when you look at the original language. Is he had him fill up those six jars and then he said, now go back to the well and draw some more. And this time when they drew out of the well, it was no longer water, it was wine. Now, here's what I want to tell you. It doesn't really matter if they're dipping a cup in the water and it's turned in wine or they're pulling up out of a well and wine's at the bottom. Either way, that doesn't happen. Right? I know we're Baptists, but let me ask you a quick question. Or most of us in the room are Baptists. What is wine made out of? Grape juice. Now think about this. So if Jesus had taken grapes and somehow miraculously transformed the process that takes years to accomplish and turning it into wine, then that would be amazing. But he doesn't take even the most basic component of what wine is and turn it into that. He takes something that's not part of it. Water. We'll talk about that in a minute. So they took it. Here's what happens. Well, the master of the feast, we don't have a clue who that is. We don't know that as a butler. We don't know as a family member. We don't know who this was, but it's the master of ceremonies. Tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So they didn't tell him. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this is important, all right? Jesus doesn't just turn it into some cheap box wine, right? He turns it into the good stuff. Now, confession here, I have no clue the difference. Never tasted it. But I know what it says here. He turned it into the good stuff. Well, And there are some people that argue, well, he turned it into really good grape juice. That's not what this means. What they're saying is you buy a little bit of really good stuff and you get everybody happy. And then the rest of the stuff is cheap stuff nobody cares about because they're all happy or angry or whatever that particular thing does to them. But he says, you've kept the good stuff till now. So just a note, Jesus, everything he does, he does with excellence, even when he turns water into wine. Here's the last thing we're going to talk about. And then he said, this is what John wrote. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Now, quick question. Do you remember what the purpose of the whole book of John is? He said, I wrote about these signs so that you might believe. They see this sign and what do they do? Believe. Here's what it did for the disciples and then we'll talk about what it means for us. What it did for the disciples is this. It gave them immediate buy-in into this man that they were going to follow. There is no evidence that anybody outside of Mary and the servants and the disciples knew where the wine came from. And we know because John wrote it down, but there's no evidence that anybody there knew 
But the disciples did. And immediately they believed. So what's the point for us? Well, it's twofold. First of all, it is so that we will believe. It's to see Jesus in this historical account of something that actually happened, do something that we can't explain, so that we immediately buy in and say, we believe. We stake our life on it. We're going to follow him. We're going to do whatever you ask. We're going to be a disciple of Jesus because he can do things nobody else can do. In fact, there are a lot of people that think this first sign of his harkens back to the very first miracle that is ever recorded in Scripture, when in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book, it says, in the beginning God created, and the idea is he created created something out of nothing and that Jesus created something out of nothing similar to it and the idea for us is that Jesus in this moment brings something completely new there's symbolism in here that we can't miss if we want to know the full understanding of what the scripture is teaching and the symbolism comes in those six jars filled to the brim 150 gallons of water in purification jars. And the point is, Jesus is saying, the time for your sacrifices and your good works and all of that things, making a way to God, is completely over. I'm bringing something newer and better. I was reading a story this week about Legos. And I have in my hand six Legos. These aren't really Legos. Those of you that are Lego aficionados know that these are the toddler version of Legos. These are mega blocks, all right? But you get the point, right? I mean, you send Johnny Decker on an errand for Legos, he comes back with mega blocks, all right? Amen. There we go. I don't know why that was amen, Dallin, but I trust him. And so, you have mega blocks. Now, here's the thing. I, I wonder. I read this story. It's just an amazing story about a Lego executive that was out at a conference in the western part of the United States. And he was telling people about the amazing things you can do with Legos. And he says to them, I wonder. And he gave them six pieces. He gave everybody their six pieces of Legos. Different shapes, different sizes, different formations. And he says, I wonder how many combinations of things you can create with these six Lego pieces. How many combinations? So here's what I want you to do. Somewhere you can write it down, you can tell your friend, whatever you want to do. I want you to come up with a number you think of completely different combinations you can make with six normal, some different shaped Lego pieces, all right? That would be good to do now, all right? So turn to somebody tell them, how many do you think? Anybody got a number for me? 123,000? Seven? It's going to be a little bit bigger than that, Matt, but good, good guess. 123,007. Anybody else got one? Well, that was a lot at once. Here it is. Here's the number, all right? This is from Lego people. I haven't verified it, but this is from Lego people. 915,103,765. If anybody would like to verify that this week, you go right ahead, all right? Now, here's the point. Six pieces... You do not see the possibilities that are there. Those six jars, nobody imagined the possibilities of what Jesus was about to bring to them. It was something new, it was something different, and it was something fresh. The problem for you and me is 
we've developed a mindset that is Thomas Jefferson-like, that is Scooby-Doo-like, where we no longer look for God to show up in the miraculous in our life. And so we miss opportunities. We're like the guests at the wedding that are drinking the good wine and don't have a clue what just happened in the back. There's another story that I love. It's a story of a guy named Joshua Bell. We actually have a video of something that Joshua Bell did. Joshua Bell is a world-famous violin player. The world-famous, did I put that in, Lydia, or did I leave it out? There it is. Joshua Bell is a world-famous violin player. This is him over in the corner. And now this is security footage, so it's obviously not going to be very good. But you can hear him playing. Now, Joshua Bell, just so you know, on the night before and after this, was playing in Carnegie Hall, and the nosebleed seats were $200 a piece. He is playing, at this moment, a 300-year-old Stradivarius violin, worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $3.5 million. He is one of the greatest violinists that has ever lived, and I want you to notice the reaction of the people that are there. Nobody, except for a few, even take notice that he's there. At the end of the day, he collected tips. At the end of the day, he had collected $34 in tips. One guy left him 20 because he recognized who he was. Everybody else left a total of 14. And here's what you notice. In the midst of an amazing performer, people are completely unaware because their lives are not allowing them to stop and listen. This is the question I wonder for you and for me. How many times does God have something supernatural, miraculous, unworldly planned for us? And we don't take the time to stop and evaluate or stop and listen. And we're like these people just passing by while God's prepared to do something amazing. You see, God intends to do something new. All right, you can take it off, Lydia. He wants to bring something completely new to you. So what does that mean? It can mean a couple of things. First of all, perhaps you, like many of the people there that were Old Testament religion people, have been trying to make yourself good enough. You've been trying to do enough. You've been trying to live good enough. You've been trying to outweigh your good with your bad. And as a result, you have failed miserably in living a life that measures up to God's standard of perfection. I mean, God's plan for all of us is that we would be in relationship with him. The problem is none of us can do that. And just like the Jewish people who had all these rites and rituals, six purification jars meant that there were tons of people there and they were all washing their hands and going through the purification rites and making sure they followed everything exactly like they were supposed to do. And Jesus is announcing that time is over. You can't do it on your own. But there is a time coming soon when I'll take care of it. You know what I think is interesting about this? Is Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine. Let me ask you a question. He's sitting at the table with his disciples on the last night that he would be with them. And what's there at the meal? Wine. And he tells them there, just as he showed in that miracle that the old way is gone and the new way has come, he says, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Listen, you'll never be able to do enough on your own. 
If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, not a follower of his, and you're looking for rescue from somewhere, he is offering that to you today. The most amazing miracle that God has ever done, and God has done some miracles in my life, but the most amazing miracle God has ever done is he saved me from my sin. And the most amazing miracle that God wants to do in your life is to save you from yours. He wants to bring something completely new. You say, I don't even have a clue what you're talking about, or I think that I did that in the past, but I just keep seeming to run into a wall. It just seems happening, and I can't make it anywhere. The second thing that this may mean is maybe you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've gotten stuck in the rut of the religious rituals or the life and its never-ending demands on your schedule, and you don't have time to stop and see what God wants to do. Maybe you're in a place where financially you don't have a clue what it's going to mean for the next day. Maybe in your career you've kind of hit a dead end or you keep finding yourself running into walls that you don't know where they're coming from and you're just trying to figure it out and you can't understand what God is doing. Maybe you're here and you've asked God for something and it didn't show up and you have become angry and you've closed yourself off to what God wants to offer. He wants to do something completely new in your life. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you for the next few weeks to show up and be here on Sunday mornings as we talk about these miracles. But more than that, I want you to open yourself up to the possibility that God wants to do something amazing and new in your life. That he he wants to break through the routine of your everyday existence and do something you can't explain. Now let me just tell you, If you think he can't, then you are just like Thomas Jefferson cutting the miracles out of Scripture because you're saying that the God who did it then is no longer capable of doing it now. What's the greatest thing you could imagine happening in your life? What's that thing that you wish more than anything would happen in your life? And are you able to trust that God knows best and that he can do more they could ever ask or imagine. We're marching towards Easter. Maybe you figured out from the title that when we get to Easter, we're going to talk about the God who robs the grave. But before we get there, we're going to talk about a God who takes even a simple festival like a wedding to display the glory of the power that he has and shows people that he is about to do something completely new in their lives. Would you bow with me for prayer?